0: Brothers and sisters, let us rise again from our seats for our scripture reading. Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, p- pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may be clothed; yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: One of the more frequent uh, questions I've been getting these days from young adults, and also a lot of adults, is that how do I, or why is it that I come to church on Sunday and I don't feel uh, revived? And sometimes I just answer very shortly, I'm sorry, it was a bad sermon, (laughs) Uh, but A lot of times it is about how we prepare for Sunday. Uh, One of the greatest reasons that practically and psychologically speaking, we do not get the most benefit out of the Word on Sunday is that on Saturday, because that is the day that we must enjoy ourselves, we use all of our emotional and mental capital to um, play or game or enjoy ourselves until 4 a.m. And you come to church without the emotional capacity to cry or to have joyfulness in front of the Lord— and so spending Saturdays is a crucial art to preparing for Sunday. How do you enjoy the Sabbath? It is to be intentional in the day before uh, on Saturday and to think about what does God want me to... Uh, so I, I, I told the soon uh, that I recommend this, that they do this. Go out into nature, have a 15-minute walk, and ask yourself before the service, uh, God, what do you want me to know about yourself? What do you want me to know about myself? And what do you want, or who do you want me to meet on Sunday? And if you have that intentionality that isn't clouded over by, you know, your desires and your pleasures, uh, Sunday becomes something that you can really get something out of. And I prepared uh, with the hope that God would have a message for you today, amen? Uh, God is good, and He has something that He deeply wants us to tell, uh, wants us to understand today, and we see that in the church of Laodicea. Uh, Welcome to the final church of the Diagnosis of the Church series. Uh, We started out with Ephesus, who lost his first love. Then we went to the compromising church of Pergamum, followed by the full-on marriage to sin of Thyatira. And by the time we reached Sardis, which is called the dead church, and notice I left out Smyrna and Philadelphia, those were two churches that God had no accusations against. He only commended them. But by the time we reach Sardis, the, the church is so worldly and hypocritical that it only has the reputation of being alive, but is actually dead. And we wonder, you think that this would be the, down, the end of the downward spiral, that it would all stop here? Because how do you get uh, to a worse state than being dead? And here it is in Laodicea. Uh, this is the lukewarm church. Somehow being lukewarm is being worse than dead. And we have to understand what this means. Uh, this church didn't even have a reputation of being alive like Sardis. Uh, it was so wishy-washy that it didn't have an actual identity. And interestingly, the city like that, uh, the city of Laodicea was actually like that in many senses. And so, remember, John is writing from Patmos Island, and he's writing to all the cities that uh, that follow the uh, post office route right now, if, uh, Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. And this is the last church, and John has an intimate knowledge of that area. He knows the geography. He knows what's happening there, the topography, and he knows what to say to this place through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus speaking personally through him. And this is what God says to lukewarm Christians. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And this uh, comparison between hot and cold happens on three occasions here. Uh, when Scripture repeats hot and cold something, three times it is dead serious about what it's saying. So, what is it talking about? Where is this hot and cold coming from? Uh, Laodicea's citizens had built an aqueduct system. Uh, their city didn't have access to a very clean stream uh, or river, and so it drew uh, its water from a nearby river uh, through aqueduct systems. And um, uh, archaeologists later found that these aqueducts were filled with lime. And that was evidence that this water was very high in mineral capacity and it was also very warm. Um, Tacitus, the, the Roman historian, writes about the city and how their aqueducts uh, uh, carried dirty water. And so why was this? Uh, Why was the water that came to the city so dirty and trepid and lukewarm? Uh, We have to understand the geography of this place. And so let's look at uh, the first picture. To the northeast of Laodicea, uh, this place still exists today, and it's a pretty famous Instagram spot. Hierapolis is known for its world-famous hot springs. So people in the past would go here, and a lot of you are writing this down so you can go (laughs) later on. Uh, But Uh, People would bathe here in this water for medicinal and therapeutic purposes. Um, To the southeast of Laodicea was the next picture, Colossi. And Colossi was known for its crystal uh, clean icy water, and it still runs today, and you could drink from this water. And so there was hot water and there was cold water right around this area. And where the two sources of water converged is called the Lycus River. The Lycus River is filled with hot mineral water, meeting with cold water, and it would become dirty and uh, lukewarm, and dead animals or dead uh, microbes would fill the place, would fill the water. And so the aqueducts were channeling the, the mixture of these two waters, and it was lukewarm. And so Jesus was saying that the Christians in Laodicea are just like the water that the Laodiceans drink on a daily basis, it is mixed syncretistic is mixing together the world and christianity It's lukewarm is neither medicinal nor drinkable and jesus is referring to a half-hearted undecisive ineffective christians that don't have the healing properties of a hot bath nor are they like drinking water and refreshing like cold water but this is just a description of the symptom Let's take a look at the actual cause of why these people were lukewarm. Why were they like this? Verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. If you look at the Greek, direct Greek translation, it says this. Uh, It doesn't say, I am rich and I have prospered. Uh, What it says is, I am rich and have gotten riches. In other words, the people there are saying, not only am I currently rich, I know how to make more money. Uh, The Laodiceans were engulfed by a spiritual pride, saying that they were a self-made church, a self-made people, and a self-made city. They didn't have any needs. And if you look at where this mentality came from, Laodicea was actually rich. It went through the same earthquake uh, that destroyed uh, Philadelphia and Sardis and eight other cities, seven other cities. It went through the same earthquake, but it refused all the support of the Roman money, the emperor's money, and they produced their own money to build back the city even better. Uh, It was a central trading hub. All the roads that uh, converged upon the city was central to trade in this area, so a lot of money would pass by. They had enough, acquired enough money to develop an, uh, a very sophisticated banking industry. Uh, there were sophisticated banks here, and they were minting its, old gold, its own gold coins. And so they were doing very well economically. And they also produced a solid, fine black wool. Wool was a very big trade that they made. And they also had a med- medical education center, and they produced Phrygian eye salve phrygian eye salve to help with seeing and so when jesus says you know actually come to me and i'll give you salve for your eyes so that you can actually see it's referring to the commerce of this area they produced eye salves and they were economically educationally uh, commerce wise they were a very well-off city self-made and that's why they were lukewarm they had their aqueducts And I need you to memorize this, listen to this. I need need you to apply this to your lives. Lukewarmness comes from not needing God because you believe you are self-sufficient. Lukewarmness comes from not needing God because you believe you are self-sufficient. It's basically saying, I don't need your water, I have my aqueduct. And Jesus is saying, that's a dirty aqueduct. In fact, uh, usually at the end of this sermon I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of gathering together and praying uh, identifying which of the seven churches you are and praying together. but I realized more and more that this is not seven unique types of sins and seven unique types of churches that have different kinds of sins. These are seven churches with one huge sliding scale that determines whether they're healthy or whether they're not and so I organized that in a very uh, ghetto graph let's look at the graph sorry it looks so basic <laughs> um on the one end you have smyrna and philadelphia and these will be the churches that are suffering so much that they show that they are satisfied in christ alone they are small they are weak they are ostracized they don't have connections they don't have money and therefore they say we will stay truthful to god's word alone and they love god they cannot trade him for anything and then you have ephesus they lost their love In other words, this is a spiritual principle. I hope you know this. We always look for happiness, amen? Actually, that's not an amen-worthy statement. We always look for happiness and satisfaction. And so, no matter where you are there, you are looking to be satisfied. And so, for Ephesus, the fact that they lost their first love means that they found an aqueduct for love, They found a way to replace God's love for them and their love for God, and they found a different way to experience and have love in their lives. And then you go to Pergamum, and there they're compromising with food and sexual immorality. In other words, they have food and sex aqueducts. They have ways of finding satisfaction in food and intimacy without God. And so they're the next stage. They're compromising because they found other ways to be satisfied in things not God. Thyatira, you have a marriage to the world, and there they're compromising on food and sex, but also doctrine. And so you're seeing that they have a different theology that they are not getting from God directly, and they are finding their own way around this, and that's where Jezebel is talked about. And then you have Sardis. Basically, they have lost almost everything from God, and they are a very self-made people. Only a few people were commended for their faith in this church. And then finally you have Laodicea, commerce, medicine, education, aqueducts. And I jokingly call this an aqueduct counter. You have the amount of aqueducts that you make for yourself, so that you're able to sustain yourself on water, not from the Lord, but from yourself. That's how lukewarm and compromised and tolerant you become. Do you get the scale? In other words, uh, on the left-hand side you have Philadelphia and Smyrna, and they're basically churches that, that are singing, you know, Lord you are more precious than silver, Lord you are more costly than gold. And they're proving that by dying uh, every day, they're being persecuted. And on Laodicea's end, a good song for this, <laughs> they'd be singing, I did it my way. everything's their way self-sufficient let's look at the verse Jeremiah 2.13 God says for my people have committed two evils number one they forsaken me number two they made their own cisterns they made their own aqueducts broken cisterns that can hold no water God who is truthful and he is all omniscient He is able to see into our hearts the ways that we satisfy ourselves, the broken sisters that cannot hold water, and therefore all of humanity, no matter what through what philosophy or what through what system, we're all looking for satisfaction. And I have a beautiful question that always makes you wake up. You've tried to look for satisfaction the past 20, 30, 40 years. How's that search going? How is it going empirically? What evidence can you show that says, I am actually satisfied? Apart from God, how is that search going? Notice God says that we have committed two evils. Whenever we choose something over God, one, the act of not enjoying Him is a sin in itself. And second, the act of enjoying something over Him but something that, which actually cannot satisfy you, something that is worth way less than him. So, KCPT, you have to understand this. Every time we make a decision, out of the 35,000 subconscious decisions we make every day, and about 3% of that is conscious every day, what food you're going to eat, where you're going to go, where you're going to spend time, which YouTube videos you're going to watch, all these things are a choice that has a cosmic implication. What is that? Let's look at the picture. Every time you make a choice, every time you make a choice, you proclaim that one thing is a loser and one thing is a winner. There are two evils. And when you say that God is worth less than your time on Netflix or God is worth less than your bank account and you demonstrate that and evidence that in your own life by choosing things that are not of Him, you proclaim to the universe That God is worth less than what you are actively looking for. Why is North Virginia so lukewarm? Why are we so lukewarm? Why are we so indecisive about how to live for God? Here you have it you have too many aqueducts, you have too many other ways of survival. You're too well off. You're too smart. You're too self sufficient. Something in your life is manageable and you don't need God. And the only reason you're coming to church is because of your weaknesses where you know you can't have control over your life. And that's why I love it when you have children. You can't control them. That's why you're broken and you come to church. I'm sorry, I love it when you go bankrupt. Because that's the only way you'll understand that Jesus is your riches alone and you get rid of aqueducts, you get rid of ways of self-sufficiency, and you're understanding more and more and more that there is no other fount than Jesus, amen? No other fount. No other way to satisfy yourself. You see the shadow of Jesus. You see a shadow of God's omnipotence and his benevolence and everything in the created world, and you think that's what gives you satisfaction when you're ignoring the gift giver and you go after the gift you're so self-sufficient, you're so smart, and you don't have to pray about anything. We used to pray, my parents, they prayed, Lord, show us the school that my son must go to. Do we pray that anymore? We Google it. Ratings, community standards, Whether they're teaching CRT or not, you have a matrix that informs how you make decisions. You don't need God. And the more self sufficient you become, you become lukewarm. I have the aqueduct of active and passive income. Why do I need the living water of grace? I have common sense and leadership skills. Why do I need to pray? I have a good family. Why do I need community? I have moral guidelines. Why do I need the Spirit of God? I have a girlfriend, a boyfriend, or a spouse that meets my needs, so why do I need intimacy with Christ? You have so many aqueducts that you choose God as the loser every single day of your life. No one will live and die for our sovereign God because there's so many options out there. We do not bow down to golden calves anymore. We do not worship Baal. We don't sacrifice our children to Molech. But every part of your life is characterized by idolatry. You have something better than God. Therefore, Your prayer life is weak. Your QT time, your Bible has dust on top of it. Your time spent with community is so self-centered. You're always asking, what can I get from this? You're not realizing the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to stab your heart from 20 different directions. I'm trying to destroy all the aqueducts you have. You know the people that are really listening to me right now, and I know because I've talked with them, is people that have recently lost family members to cancer or to some disease or people who recently got kicked out of their job. I've talked with them. They love Christ more than you do. And our self-sufficiency. Scripture calls it pride. Laodicea was lukewarm because of pride. The first sin where Adam said, I don't need God, I can be God, and he eats the tree. Sorry, the fruit on the tree. And it's the same for us every single day. Every time we reach out to something other than God and saying, If I have Google, if I have a database, if I have passive income, I don't need God because that's what I want from him anyway. Therefore, we are lukewarm. But hear what the Spirit says to the church. Despite their banks, the Laodiceans were poor. Despite their garments, they were naked. And despite their powder, they were blind. Verse 17 For you say, I am rich, and I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, and pitiable, and poor, and blind, and naked. The North Korean Christians are actually rich. They're connected. They have everything they need in Christ. And self-sufficient Nova people, citizens of Northern Virginia, are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked because they hold on to cheap and fake substitutes for Christ. This church was like the rich young man who asked, good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. You have 99 aqueducts. You have one thing that you lack, and it's actually the most important thing. Go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Follow me, Jesus says, follow me. But at these words, the rich young adult was saddened, and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Too many aqueducts, too self-sufficient, and he had to choose his aqueducts over the living water of Jesus Christ. Even though he wanted eternal life, he couldn't give up his riches to follow the Lord. Today, he is known as the hallmark of lukewarmness, of not being able to make a decision. And he is the secular postmodern hero. All of us are like him. We've heard the truth. We've been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, I can't follow him. How many of you have become lukewarm? because you have the means to meet your own needs. The Lord says that we fail to realize that we are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I know already how some of you think now because I've had a lot of conversations. A lot of you will, will then angrily say, Pastor David, do you want us to give up our possessions, give up our jobs, and run away from our families to follow the Lord? No. I'm saying, Be faithful to the word of God, and there will be persecution in your life that shows that you value the word more than what you treasure. And God has an individual calling for you. He wants some of you to be rich, He wants some of you to be poor. And in His sovereignty, He has given you the walk that you should walk. But I'm asking you, are you faithful and are you satisfied in Christ alone? Are you faithful? Are you satisfied in Christ alone? Or are you so self-sufficient that the reason that you're coming here right now is an accessory? This is an accessory to your spiritual life. It's a cherry on the top. I have everything I need in the Maslow's Pyramid. I have everything. I have of food, shelter, and clothing, and individual success and self-realization. And I have that. And on top of that, I want to be morally okay before Christ. And that's why you're here. You will remain lukewarm forever. And Jesus will spit you out of his mouth. Jesus gives us hope because he says this. I counsel you. I give you the best advice. Buy from me gold refined by fire. If you actually want to be rich, go to Jesus and he will give you riches beyond your imagination. Satisfaction. White garments so that you may clothe yourself not with your own righteousness but the sh- and, and, and your, get rid of your shame of your nakedness by clothing yourself with the righteousness of Jesus. And to put the salve and the powder, the ointment on your eyes that comes from me. Jesus is selling all of this. Jesus is the source of everything that you're looking for that's causing you to be lukewarm. If you were actually seeing reality correctly, and you had opened spiritual eyes, you would see that all that you're looking for is in Jesus, and you would go to him, and your life would not be lukewarm. You would be on fire to get closer to Jesus because the best return on investment. Jesus offers exactly what you're looking for. Everything else in the world is a shadow of what you are looking for, and Jesus says, if you want to stop being lukewarm, come to me and buy from me and get from me. If you knew this, your prayer life would be on fire. Not because you're saying the right things, but because you know where it comes from. The story of Jacob. Uh, I hope you're all familiar with Jacob. Jacob was aqueduct man. (laughs) He was Mr. Aqueduct. He cheated, stole, lied, to get to the top of the game, to get sheep, to get riches, to get the girl, to get the fame, to get the tribal recognition. Does it all. Aqueducts. He is Mr. Aqueduct. One day he wrestles with God. He sent away everything that he owned in caravans. The, most, the people and the things that he least needed, he sent first. And then, you know, uh, more groups of, you know, gifts. And he spaced it out so that Esau, his brother, wouldn't kill him. And the last thing he did is that he sends his family. And then alone, he wrestles with God. Alone, he wrestles with God. And God hits the socket of Jacob's hip right here. Have any of you ever been injured here? Uh, It takes away a man's strength can't do anything. The lower center of balance is how you do everything in life, physical. And God took it away. He took away his biggest aqueduct, his will to live for himself, his drive to be powerful. He takes it all away. And he is blessed with what? A limp and a new name. His name becomes Jacob, which means wrestler, He's wrestling his way into the world and making his own aqueducts. And Jesus, God, turns his name into Israel, Yisrael. What that means, it doesn't just mean that you fought against God and you won. This should be translated passively. And El becomes the subject and not the object. And this is how it's translated. God will fight for you. You don't need your hip bone. You don't need your aqueduct. You don't need to fight yourself. God will fight for you. That is the blessing of being a Christian. God's going to fight for you. God's going to give you what you need. God will give you the water that you so thirst for if you will let him get rid of your aqueducts. That's why so many mature Christians confess, he has taken away my strength, and he's given me his strength. He will take the riches you boast in and He will give you His riches. He'll give you the vindication and the justification you're looking for and He will give you His. God will fight for you. Amen? When you know that, you're no longer lukewarm. You wake up and before you have breakfast, you say, Lord, Lord, You know that my body needs nutrients. You are my bread. You are my word. And even if I eat this pancake, I'm going to be hungry. And you eat in the knowledge that Jesus is your bread. And that's why Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's how it's possible. You know that Jesus is the only one that satisfies, and you do everything with that in mind. He doesn't want you to be lukewarm. But in the morning, from the waking hours, you can be on fire for Him because you know that He is what you need. So how do we get the riches that Jesus promises to sell us? Number one, repent. Verse 19 says, Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous, in other words, take a stance. Take a stance and repent. Like, how do we buy gold if we are broke? Jesus tells us the following parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And in his joy, he went and sold what? All he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. He, what he, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What does that mean? Repentance means to sell what you have, get rid of the aqueducts that you have. I'm not saying you need to quit your jobs right now. I'm saying that you need to stop depending on it. I'm not saying stop owning things. I'm saying don't let things own you. Give up your self-dependence and pridefulness, your independence, and confess that without Jesus and his riches, you are poor. Without Jesus' righteousness, you are naked. And without Jesus' blood to wash your eyes, you are blind. Repentance means that you see something of such great value, that Jesus is so valuable that you sell all your self-sufficiency and you go to him to be satisfied. Truly, satisfied. Once again, the greatest lie that Satan tells is that if you get rid of everything that you desire and you chase after God, if you go to seminary, if you become a missionary, if you give your life to God as a lay minister in your workplace, you will be miserable. That is Satan's greatest lie. Why are we doing this? Because of the satisfaction we have in Christ and we've tasted the world. We've tasted affairs. We've tasted illicit sex. We've tasted all these things that, that don't satisfy our hearts. We've tried cheating and getting better grades. We've tried competing and advancing in our workplaces and not being satisfied. The honest person will say, why do I go to church? What do I serve as a school leader? Why do I give my life for him? Because only Jesus has a track record of satisfying me. Let Jesus in. That's the second stage. Repent and let Jesus in. He stands at the door and knocks to come in and give yourself. If you can't memorize his verse, memorize the song. BBS. Behold, behold, I stand at the door and knock, knock, knock. Behold, behold, I stand at the door and knock, knock, knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my voice, and he opens, Opens, opens the door, I'll... Is it live with him? Live with him. Open the door. Open your heart. One day Jesus is going to kick it in. (laughs) It'll open the door anyway. And you'll be forced to see how precious Jesus is on the last day. You'll be forced. But before it's forced. With eyes of faith. Would you see that the Lord is good? Will you taste and see that God is good? Psalms tell you, taste and see. Try it out. Take the bungee jump and see if the cord can hold your weight. Throw all of your needs upon Jesus and see if he satisfies. The reason you're lukewarm is because you haven't tried it yet. This word... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is a very common-sense phrase in Laodicea. Laodicea was located with each of the four gates facing the most important trade routes and road junctions in Asia Minor. The inhabitants were familiar with the traveling merchants who stood at the door every morning, and they knocked to bring in their riches. And whoever opened the door first to let the merchant in, it's like being... First in line on Black Friday, you have first access. And Jesus is saying, as much as you open the door to the merchants who cannot satisfy you, and year by year they've demonstrated that the gold mint coins and the black wool and the eye doesn't actually heal you or satisfy you, as much as you still open the door every morning, hear me knock at the door, I bring everlasting living water, for your salvation and for your satisfaction, would you open the door be truly satisfied? When Jesus knocks, he brings in all the riches of the kingdom of God. Whoever dines with him is rich. Whoever eats with him is not alone. Whoever has first access to Jesus has access to all of his benefits. And so may KCPC be a church that always opens the door to Jesus that we would not be poor, but be rich. That we would have not lukewarm people undecided about what the better life is, but a group of people who have tasted and seen that only Christ can satisfy and have determined to live for Christ alone. May that be our church. Amen? ACPC, how do you avoid being a lukewarm and useless Christian, how do you avoid a lukewarm, useless life that is neither hot nor cold? Repent. Confess that your riches are rags. Confess that it's not enough. Then looking to the riches of Christ, treasure him. Enjoy him. Some of you just don't know enough about him. Read about the life of Jesus in the four Gospels. See how the Old Testament narrative points to the necessity of the exact life and death that Christ lived. Read more and see who he is like because you don't have enough substantial knowledge of Jesus. Some of you lack the holistic, the relational aspect. You don't pray enough. Like, Here's the benefit of praying a lot. It's not that you get your wishes fulfilled. He's not a genie. The benefit of prayer is that you prayed about a deeply disturbing or deep necessity in your life if you pray to God about it and whenever something happens you see the finger of God upon your life and you see that he is good he's gentle he gives you exactly what you need to become more like Christ and not what you want to become like and as you experience God's character not just through the word but also through a life that is lived out in prayer you see and experience that God is good some of you need to read the Bible more. Some of you need to pray more. But Pastor David, what if Christ doesn't satisfy me? What if becoming dependent upon Christ is too scary, is too painful? Like, I love my aqueducts. I love being not having to walk to the well every time to pick up water, but to draw it from my refrigerator every day, or however you get it. What if I can't make the jump? Then you need to hear, as we have every seven weeks, of the revelation of not who you are, that's just a diagnosis. You have to hear the revelation of who Jesus says he is, the revelation of the physician. Jesus calls himself the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness. Amen is translated in the King James Version, verily, verily, Truly, truly, I say to you, basically Jesus is saying, amen, amen, I say to you. That means what I say is truthful. He himself is truth. The best remedy to pride and self-sufficiency is the truth of Jesus Christ to truth. Number one, trust me when I say, you are bankrupt. You are pitiable. And what you hold on to in this life, that is pitiable. Trust Jesus when he says that. But number two, trust Jesus when he says, I am enough for you. Trust me, I am enough for you. Jesus alone deserves your trust. Out of all the gods, that's why we do comparative religious studies, that's why we look at apologetics. Out of all the gods, out of all the philosophies, Christ alone, God became flesh to die for your sin. Why was the cross a historical event? Why did Jesus bear flesh? And why did he come into Bethlehem for all to observe so that we would have confidence that his life and death actually happened? It wasn't God snapping a finger saying, your sins are forgiven. He's saying, I show you that you can trust me, that you can see that I am a trustworthy God. And when I say that you are pitiable and poor right now, and if you come to me, you will be satisfied. You can trust me. And then you would say, Yes, Lord, I will believe that you alone can satisfy. I will no longer be lukewarm. I will be honest to myself and pursue the greatest satisfaction by pursuing you. I want you to be selfish, even. If you really want joy, if you really want happiness, 6,000 years of human history that is recorded on paper shows that nothing categorically satisfies you. People with many wives commit suicide. People with much money commit suicide. Comedians commit suicide. Philosophers commit suicide because they haven't found what they're looking for. And Christ says, I counsel you. Come to me. Come to me. I'll give you water. I'll give you gold. I'll give you healing. I'll give you the one thing that nothing in the world can give you, justification and salvation. I'll give it to you. And the honest hedonist, the rational return on investment calculator will go to Christ because he is enough. We're finishing the seven-part sermon series. It's been a joy to share God's word with you for seven weeks in a row about this series. I want to ask you, which church are are you? Should we do that? Ephesus, woo. <laughs> Smyrna, woo. <laughs> Gold for that. <laughs> it's not seven types. It's one criteria. How satisfied you are you in Christ? How much do you lack satisfaction in Christ that's making you turn to the world in compromise, tolerance, and deadness, and hypocrisy, and lukewarmness? Are you satisfied? Are you compromising, tolerating, dead, hypocritical, Hi- lukewarm? Ask yourself, how serious am I about getting Christ? Christ, his invitation is still open today. Behold, I stand at your door and I knock, ready to satisfy you, ready to forgive you, ready to give you what you're looking for. Would you open the door? Gracie, can you come up? How, How else do I make this message stick with you? The consequences are serious. If you are not satisfied in Christ, God will not force you into heaven. Because heaven is heaven, not because the facilities are good or because the systems are great, not because they have the best buildings. Heaven is heaven because of the one who lives there. And if you love Christ, you will want to go to heaven. And if you don't make a practice of being satisfied in Christ... God being the God he is in his gentle character will not force you to stay in heaven. And hell is filled with God's wrath towards those who have chosen anything but Christ for their ultimate salvation and for their ultimate satisfaction. The stakes are so high. And I know on the last day, I'm going to regret not crying to you right now, not, not shouting this out more not convicting you and driving for an application, not driving for a decision. I don't want to regret when when I stand before the Lord and He asks me what I did with His message. Will you live for Christ? Will you be satisfied in Him? I hope God saw that. I won't be embarrassed when I stand in front of him. Let's sing.